morning, everyone. Um, welcome again to our series on Does God Exist? and presented to us by John Clayton. Um, this is an amazing series of lessons. We have covered uh, 17 different lessons at this point. Today will be the 18th. Um, and it is amazing the wide variety of topics and issues and and circumstances that he is able to address and cover in these uh, in these lessons and do so um, with a tenderness of heart an understanding of where people are coming from when they believe some of the things that they believe that are not found in the Bible um, as he himself was an atheist up through a good portion of, of his youth and even into young adulthood um, and we have many to come. Um, today will put us, uh, is it 36 lessons total? I think today will put us at the halfway mark. Uh, today he is going to finish up a uh, two-part series that he started last week. And uh, the title of these, uh, these two lessons are called Which God? And uh, he is, is looking at man's view of God um, in various different religions and uh, comparing that to the God of the Bible. And um, he's doing this by looking at what those religions say about themselves, about mankind, and about, about God uh, himself, if they believe uh, in God at all. So we're going to listen uh, to this, and then we're going to come back and talk about some things uh, that he mentions and maybe elaborate on maybe one minor point that he mentions and we'll see where we go with that. Welcome to the Does God Exist video series, program number 18. And this is a continuation of the previous program. And if you didn't watch the previous program, I would urge you to do so because this won't make much sense if you didn't watch the first one. What we did in the first one was we talked about why religious pluralism is not an answer for the things that we are concerned about in this discussion. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father but by me. In our culture today, that's not politically correct. Although I believe any Muslim, any Buddhist, any Hindu would maintain that their faith is the right faith. It's important to understand here that this is not an attempt to be intolerant. Intolerance is not discussing difficulties. Intolerance is being unwilling to accept someone else because they are different. And as I have said before, I hope this doesn't come across as demeaning, denigrating, or condemning of any other particular group of people. On the other hand, I believe the Bible and the Christian system is the way in which man should function, and my belief is based upon personal experience and upon evidence. I did not inherit my faith as a Christian. I came to believe in God through science. And once I believed in God, the next question was, which God? And what I'm doing here is that I'm trying to share with you some of the things that led me to become a Christian instead of a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim or a Baha'i or whatever else might be out there. In the previous 
presentation, we looked at some of those kinds of evidence. We looked at the issue of clarity, that there is remarkable clarity in the Bible, that things like the fog index give us a way of evaluating and comparing the biblical record to other records. We talked about the fact that there is a lack of insecurity statements in the Bible. We don't see Jesus expressing doubts about his authority. And people in his own day were impressed with the fact that he spoke differently than the other religious figures of his day. The next evidence that I'd like to share with you is that the Bible is brief. And men are never brief. <laughs> Do I have to belabor that point? Let me give you an oxymoron, two words that don't go together. Brief, politician. <laughs> they don't go together, do they? Brief, preacher. They don't go together. Some of you may be saying, yeah, look at how many DVDs you got in this series. Well, I don't pretend to be brief. Men are never brief. But what's interesting is that there is a remarkable difference between the biblical manuscripts and the other religious manuscripts that are out there in this area. Do you know that in the Library of Congress, there are over 35 million volumes of scientific material on the creation of the earth and on the creation of life upon the earth? And that 35 million volumes is covered in 31 verses of Genesis 1. <laughs> That's one of the reasons a lot of people have trouble with Genesis 1. They want to read something like, In the beginning, God synthesized deoxyribonucleic acid with the polymerization of complex proteases. And as a matter, they want the whole thing spelled out. And you can almost picture Moses writing that down. Yeah, Lord, sure. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't have made any sense to Moses. It wouldn't have made any sense to most of us. So there is remarkable difference. And incidentally, if you look at the Vedas, the Vedas have well over 200 pages dealing with the question of the creation of the earth and of life upon the earth. So there is a remarkable difference. Major events in the life of Jesus are covered in incredibly short form. The baptism of Jesus, four verses. The transfiguration of Christ, five verses if you count the time just actually taking place, eight verses, if you count the time going up and down the mountain. But this is one of the most significant events in the whole Bible. Eight verses. As a matter of fact, there's 21 chapters in the book of John covering the life of Jesus. It adds up, if you calculate how long Jesus was on the earth in the flesh, it adds up to be about 12,000 days. The ministry of Christ, if you add up every day recorded in the Bible for the life of Christ and his ministry, ends up being about 1,200 days, something over three years. But if you add up all of the days actually recorded in the biblical record, you get a grand total of about 34 days. Now, there are lots of things that we might like to have had about Jesus that are not included. For instance, we don't know what Jesus looked like. Oh, I know you've seen pictures of Jesus, but those are just artist speculations. Oh, I know exactly what Jesus looked like. You know, he, he was six foot one inches tall. He weighed 240 pounds. He had yellowish green eyes. He was bald. Yeah, he looked just like me. And don't you see that's why we don't have that? Somebody would have their hand out, wouldn't they? 
And reading the Quran, you'll find out some of the personal habits of Muhammad. How many times he brushed his teeth. Discussions about the difficulties he had with his wives. There's one passage where Muhammad tells his 15 wives he's going to divorce all of them if they don't get along better. So it's a radical departure from this. And you can see the biblical writers frustrated because they weren't allowed to do what normal, natural things would be for a person to record. In John 20 and verse 30, we're told that there were many other things that Jesus did that are not recorded in this book. He would, John would love to have recorded it. And he goes on in, in verse 25 of, of chapter 21 and says, the whole world will hold what I want to write. But he wasn't being allowed to do so. Go to the library and get a copy of the Vedas. We're talking three volumes, like so. Certainly no brevity. There is a remarkable difference. It's also interesting that the Bible does not contain whitewash. And boy, we know about whitewash, don't we? Some of our politicians have taught us remarkably well about whitewash. Many times people criticize the Bible because of the bad things that are there. You read about David, a man after God's own heart. And you read about a guy that had a sexual affair with his best soldier's wife. And when Bathsheba became pregnant, he got the guy home from battle and tried to get him to sleep with his wife so that David could deny the baby was his. And when that didn't work, he had the man murdered. You know, when I was an atheist, we had the idea about writing a, bi a, a, a Bible, actually, that was going to be called the X-rated Bible. That's actually been done now. Not by me, but by other people. Going through and looking at stories like the one I just recalled to you, and saying, how can you believe in the Bible when that bad stuff is in there? But that bad stuff is a testimony to the fact that the Bible didn't come from humans. Now, I'm an old man. Some of you young people may have trouble with this one. But back in my hippie days, we believed that John F. Kennedy was some kind of a god. We used to talk about the White House, and we called it Camelot. And our belief was that John F. Kennedy was perfect, that he never made any mistakes, that he had incredible courage, that he was perfect morally, never compromised himself in anything. Well, over the years, we've realized that John F. Kennedy had some weaknesses, too. He had some weaknesses I don't even have. His feet were made out of clay, just like the rest of us. But you got to understand that that when you tell about a hero, you don't tell the bad stuff. You don't record the negatives. You only record the good things. And many of us have found that our heroes sometimes were not as great as we thought they were. Because the only thing we were exposed to was their successes and their strengths. Now, let me give you a little comparison that I think is kind of interesting. I went to the World's Fair when it was in Montreal, and I was given a copy of the Koran. It looked like this. This copy has been distributed to the press. It has been widely distributed in the United States. But as I read it, it didn't match with the one 
that I had had when I was in college. As a matter of fact, let me give you a way of comparing this. You can compare this Quran with a Quran that looks like this. This is published by Penguin Classics. And you can get it at any bookstore online. You can get it probably in, in most used bookstores very economically. It's translated by a man by the name of Daywood, who himself is a Muslim. What's the difference between this one and this one? Well, this one has been westernized. What I mean by that is that anything that the people who were doing the translating thought would be offensive to, to Westerners attending the World's Fair in Montreal was taken out. This one is probably the one that some of our terrorists have been reading. There's a difference in the Korans. Whitewash. And it's important to realize that this is in direct contrast to the Bible where we not only see the good things about our Bible heroes, but about uh, the weaknesses. We see Abraham on two different occasions willing to let his wife become another man's wife because he didn't trust in God. We see Paul and Peter having difficulties, Peter making enormous mistakes because, again, we're told the bad as well as the good. The last point I want to make about the internal evidence of the Bible is that there are no superlatives in the Bible. The Bible uses objective language. And it's important here to recognize that as you look at this question of objective language, what you see is just simply the statements that are made are very clear and very simple and very easy to understand. There's no string of adjectives in front of the biblical record. There's another kind of evidence. And I call this checkability. That's not a Bible term, that's my term. I've always was told as a child by my atheist parents and friends that the Bible was full of stupid scientific mistakes. There was an ancient manuscript that was just overflowing with errors. And you'll hear people today, especially atheists today, and especially on the web, talk about all the errors that are in the Bible. Well, let's talk about the positive aspects of this thing for a minute. Because the Bible has incredible scientific accuracy. One of the very beautiful articles that has come out in the 20th century was an article in Natural History. It first appeared way back in 1970. It was written by a man by the name of Franklin Branley, and it was called Conceptions of the Universe. It was illustrated by a man by the name of Wimmer. And the pictures that were part of this have been in planetariums and other places all over the country. It was beautifully done. What Branley and Wimmer did was to look at ancient conceptions of how the Earth was held up in space. And it's interesting because you see the Chaldean concept and it's very similar to the Babylonian concept. Let me just take this one and, and explain it to you a little bit here. In the Babylonian concept, and again, this is Wimmer's work, this is not my work. In the Babylonian concept, the earth was inside a celestial sphere, sort of like a plexiglass hemisphere, if you will. And the moon and the stars were fastened to the top of the sphere by threads, essentially. 
And the sun was a giant ball of fire pushed across the sky every day by a giant beetle. And you can see the house on the right-hand side. Now, that's a gross oversimplification of the concept. But this is the concept that the Babylonians had. When I was in college, I took a course in comparative religion, and I was told that the Old Testament was simply a regurgitation of Babylonian myth. And the question is, do you see this kind of explanation anywhere in the Bible? You do see it in Egyptian writings. In the Egyptian concept, the sun was a chariot of fire being driven across the sky by the sun god Ra. You may remember the Pharaoh's name, Ramesses. And it was a very similar type of thing. The Hindu concept had the earth on the back of four elephants standing on a giant turtle. Now, I want to emphasize something here. This is a very intelligent explanation. It is completely consistent with the evidence they had available to them. It is beautifully symbolic. What is the strongest animal we know of? Well, in that culture, the elephant. The elephant is holding it up. Every time the elephant moves, there's a shift in the earth. That explains earthquakes. It's, they're standing on the back of a giant turtle. Why does everything move across the sky very, very slowly? Turtles are slow. It's beautifully consistent with what was available to them. It's a very wise explanation. It's kind of interesting on the question of origins, and some of you may like this little joke. I don't know who started this or how true it is. But there supposedly was a, a scientist giving a lecture on astronomy and the suspension of the Earth in space. And uh, as he finished his lecture, this lady came up to him and she said, Well, sir, that's all wrong. The Earth is sitting on the back of a giant turtle. And, and this woman was very steeped in the culture and the tradition in which she was working. And, and the scientist said, well, that's, that's fine, but what is the turtle standing on? And she said, well, that turtle's standing on the back of another turtle. And the scientist said, well, what's that turtle standing on? And she said, doctor, it's no use. It turtles all the way down. <laughs> and it's important to understand that when you have a cultural identity, this is what you've been raised, this is what you've been taught, they certainly are going to defend that position. And, and I understand that can be applied to the Bible. It can be applied to whatever somebody believes. My question is the evidence. When you look at Japanese traditions, you see the earth on the back of a giant catfish. Is that consistent with the culture in which they lived? Of course it is. The catfish was a very fundamental part of their lifestyle. And one of the major troubles in Japan, as we have all learned in recent years, is tsunamis. And a tsunami is easily explainable with this model. If the catfish goes underwater, you're going to have a tsunami. The Greeks had the earth on the shoulders of a guy who's now selling tires for a living. <laughs> of course, I'm talking about Atlas. And this was, this was a very intelligent culture. And you can say, well, those things are symbolic. I understand that. But they're based upon the understandings of the people of the time. And in the biblical record, you do not see this. Even in poetic passages like Job, you see statements like, he hangeth the earth upon nothing. Nowhere in the biblical record is there an indication of physical support for the earth. In astronomy, there are multiple explanations that are very much the same type of thing. And I want to emphasize something here. Please do not misunderstand. I am not suggesting to you that the Bible writer sat down and said, now let's see here, I want to reveal some science. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is, that when there was a statement that can be tested scientifically in the Bible, it always turns out to be true. 
Let me take an example to try and get you to see what I'm saying. Let's look for a minute at Luke 17. Now, I'm not going to worry you right now with the theological event that's described here. What I want you to notice is the way it's stated. The passage is talking about a global event. And the writer says in verse 31, in that day. Okay, so this is a daytime event. To make sure we understand that, he goes on and describes daytime activities. People are in the field. That You don't have John Deere tractors with lights. So this is a daytime activity. The event is going to occur in the daytime. All right, that's easy. But then over in verse 34, he tells you the same event is going to occur at nighttime. I tell you, at night, and to make sure we understand, there are people in bed. That's a nighttime activity ordinarily, so we have a nighttime activity. And then the very next verse shifts back to daytime activities.